Our scripture reading this evening is 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's second letter to Pastor Timothy. This is one of Paul's pastoral epistles written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a minister of the gospel, that is to Timothy, pastor of the church at Ephesus. We are reading these words in connection with our anticipated look together at Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, that's where we were just a bit ago at Hope Church in Brampton. So that's what we have for you this evening. By the grace of God. Second Timothy chapter 2. We begin reading at verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal joy, eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. I urge you to keep your Bibles open here to this portion. And um, we've sort of been keying in to the faithful saying that the Apostle Paul has given us here, and particularly the last words of verse 13, he cannot deny himself. And turn with me then as well to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4, in the Forms and Prayers books, page 204, in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, page 873. And just a bit of explanation in terms of the context, I'm not exactly sure uh, which Lord's Days you have been um, focusing on in the last while, or perhaps you are in different places with different pastors coming. Um, on page 202, um, or the corresponding page in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, um, we have the beginning of the section entitled Misery, dealing with the reality of our misery, our brokenness, our uh, being out of fellowship with God, uh, because of our sin. Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4 focus on that sad reality. And Lord's Day 4 is the third of these three, the last before the subject um, turns to our deliverance. We'll keep that in mind. And we have been seeing um, in the Catechism the reality of our misery highlighted for us, emphasized in terms of our complete 
inability to love God as we ought and our complete um, deadness in our sins. So just to highlight um, question and answer five, can you live up to all this perfectly? And that is to love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength, body, uh, and, and your neighbor as yourself. And no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And then um, Lord's Day 3 reflects on that some more and seeks to understand that and struggles with that, you could say, as we are coming to understand ourselves before God. Question 8 also asks the question, are, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer is yes, unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. And Lord's Day 4 continues with questions. You might almost say objections, um, trying to understand and trying to uh, maybe even get out from under this reality. And now the Catechism doesn't want us to get out from under it. It's putting these things before us to make sure we get it and make sure that we get Jesus, that we understand our need for him. So Lord's Day 4, doesn't God, or but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. So far, what we have as a summary of the Bible's teaching with regard to these things. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we take up this particular study this afternoon, we feel the weight of the brokenness, we feel the weight of our sinfulness, we feel the weight of the reality of our misery. We wish it were not so. And um, by nature, we would be inclined to put up arguments and resistance against this teaching. What I want us to appreciate here is that this teaching, as difficult as it is, is fundamental to our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of our need for Jesus our need for the gospel. We need to appreciate as well that the catechism has already um, been showing us that it understands the human heart. And I think you see particularly in Lord's Day 4 with all of the 
the objections that are thrown up against the wall, so to speak, that man is doing whatever he can to get out from under making this confession about our need for grace, making this confession about the reality of our sin. You got a glimpse of that, and just as a bit of review, because uh, we're coming into this um, in context. After the confession of question and answer five, can you keep this law perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency, or I'm inclined by nature, to hate God and my neighbor. The, the resistance goes up, and the question is asked, well, well, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And of course, the answer is no. We recognize that that question is on the verge of blasphemy. Of course, God created man good and in his own image. But what we're going to be taking up together this evening are these three question and answers in Lord's Day 4, uh, a further series of objections, so to speak. The, the, the but, 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 but is what we have here. So in question and answer 9, we have this objection that's being raised. Well, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It is unjust on God's part to ask man to do what is impossible for man to do. We have just spoken of the fact that um, left to ourselves, we are so corrupt, we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. And now, what does God expect? Is kind of what the question is asking us to consider. And after we deal with that, question and answer 10 is taking the angle, well, is God actually going to let this go unpunished? And a lot of people have the idea, that's what God should do. And that's what God ought to be like. Maybe you've heard the saying, to err is human and to forgive divine. A nice saying, true in and of itself. But people almost take that to the extent that, well, of course, God is always going to forgive and there cannot be any such thing as justice. And we'll have to deal with that. We'll have to face that reality. And then finally, isn't God also merciful? So, if we deal with the reality that God is a just God, and there will be justice in the earth, there will be the reality of justice with regard to every single injustice that's ever been done. Every single sin that has ever been committed will be punished. God remains God. God cannot deny himself. That needs to be our focus here in light of the passage we have before us. And I think the questions, as we like to sort of hold on to them, we acknowledge are, are bad questions, but I think we ought also to acknowledge they are our questions. They are the questions of our hearts. And, and probably another way of, of thinking about this would be, these are the types of things you get thrown at you when people just sit around shooting the breeze, spouting off their opinion about what they think God should do or shouldn't do, or what they think God should be like, 
or should not be like. Well, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't send people to hell, people will say. But at the end of the day, what we need to be confident of is not anybody's opinion. You cannot be confident in opinions. We must be confident in what God says about himself. And we have in the language of 2 Timothy 2, from that faithful saying that begins at verse 11, the reality that God is God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, there are, there are people who, who read that in a very uh, superficial way. And they say, hey, that's kind of cool. You know, if we are faithless, that is to say, if we are without faith or we are uh, unfaithful, God remains faithful anyway and everything's going to be okay. So, la-di-da, I can go on as I please. I trust you understand that's not what the passage is saying. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, it has to be, in terms of understanding what this Catechism Lord's Day is seeking to summarize, that we hear those words as something of a challenge. Um, if I may use the word cautiously, perhaps even something of a threat. But I want us to appreciate before we go home tonight that these words, God cannot deny himself, are a great comfort and a great encouragement in the hope of the gospel we have in Jesus Christ. So, God cannot deny himself is the word of God I preach this evening. God cannot deny himself in what he expects of us, the performance he expects of us. You can't have a God who says, you know, I asked one thing of you, but ah, you know what, I'll lighten up and I'll do something different and that's okay. No, God cannot deny himself. In the second place, God cannot deny himself in the punishment he affects on sinners, the punishment he brings to bear or executes, if you will. You cannot have a God, God cannot be such a God as to say, you know, if you sin, there will be consequences, and then change his mind and say, ah, I wasn't serious, or I've changed my mind. God cannot deny himself. But God also cannot deny himself in the promise he extends to sinners. We want to get to that, where we read of the mercy of God and the blessing of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, again, do not want to be superficial in the way that we look at that. So, in the first place, God cannot deny himself in what he expects of sinners. And we consider the objection that the Catechism raises. You've told us, and we've been called upon from Scripture to agree, I am completely unable to do anything good, and I'm inclined toward all evil. So we speak of the reality of a spiritual deadness. And yet, we understand from Scripture, God calls us to live. He calls us to live for Him. He expects us to live for His glory. We're spiritually dead. We're expected to live for Him. I could take it back a step further into what was confessed in question and answer 
5 in Lord's Day 2. I'm, natural, I'm naturally inclined to hate God and my neighbor. So that's my inclination. My inclination by nature is to hate God. And God says to me, love me. Love me with all that you are in all that you do every moment of every day. And you feel the tension, right? I trust you feel the tension and you can understand the objection that's being raised by the catechism. You understand to a degree. It's, it's talking about the struggle of the human heart that says, I, I don't get this. I don't like this. This tension is not pleasant for me. And expecting one who is spiritually dead to live, or expecting one who hates to love, is, people might say, as incongruous, as it doesn't make sense, as expecting to get blood from a stone, or expecting that your goldfish may jump out of the goldfish bowl and walk down the hallway and open the front door and walk down the street. That's not going to happen, because a goldfish is not able to do that. Neither can cows fly. Right? And therefore, neither can sinners do what God expects them to do. This seems unfair. Catechism says, no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil and willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. He robbed himself. So, we're getting clear. It's sort of following up on Lord's Day 3 on how God created us good and in his own image. God is not to blame. God has created us with the ability, he has this expectation, rightfully, we have the ability to keep the law. He expects that of us. Let me try to um, illustrate what's going on here with a, a couple um, illustrations I think we can perhaps identify with. We're, we're saying here, the problem is us, not God. The problem is not that we have been created wrong, or we've been created with a, a manufacturer's defect. Uh, just compare what might happen if you have someone who um, takes a car home off of the lot and uh, soon realizes the car he bought is a real lemon, um, probably made on a Friday or something like that. And uh, things are breaking down left, right, and center, and he takes it in, and they realize, you know what, uh, you've, got, you've got a point there. And they'll stand behind their product, and they'll say, we'll fix it for you, because it's, it's our fault. It's our issue. Now, you maybe saw your neighbor do that, and you thought, well, that's kind of cool. So, um, I've got some issues with my car. It is a mess. I mean, there's oil pouring out of the oil pan on the bottom. Um, the, the side doors are all bent in, and um, the, whole, the frame is twisted, and, and they begin to ask you some questions about it. Well, what in the world is going on? Well, you know, I drive it in the fields. I jump over ditches. I've run into a few trees. I've scraped the bottom of the uh, oil pan, and... You should fix it, right? No. You have robbed yourself of the ability for this car to serve you well. This is your own abuse, right? The willful disobedience that the catechism is talking about here. Um, that's a different thing. And that's what we need to re re appreciate 
in terms of what the Bible is teaching us. Uh, to us, it almost seems like a contradiction, but it's not. We have the ability, we're created with the ability to keep the law, but now we are unable because we are fallen by our own reckless disobedience. We've robbed ourselves of this. So now we have to speak of our inability, and yet the Bible does not take away from our responsibility. The fact that we are unable does not take away from our being responsible. And that's key. God says, I still want your love. I still want my kingdom built. I want you to serve me, heart, mind, soul, and strength in all that you do. That's a clear teaching of the Bible. And God cannot deny himself in terms of what he expects of us in the performance he expects of sinners. Secondly, God cannot deny himself in the punishment he effects on sinners. The next line of defense or a line of uh, ducking away from this reality is the line that says, well, you know, God isn't really going to judge us, is he? God isn't really serious about that. And, and that lie, of course, is as old as the hills. It's as old as creation, pretty much. You know that God said to Adam and Eve in the beginning, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. And Satan, the deceiver, was a murderer from the beginning, said, has God really said? Yea, hath God said? You will not surely die. He denied the reality of God's judgment. And to this day, people who, um, even in Christian circles, have this idea that the, the idea that God is loving means he cannot send people to hell. There, there cannot be a reality of hell is the language that people will use. But you, you can't say that if you read the Bible. You can't say such things if you take Jesus seriously. No one in the Bible spoke more about hell than Jesus himself. And he spoke of that place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The pictures are not pleasant and they're not meant to be. We need not dwell on that reality, but the reality of the teaching of the Bible is God cannot deny himself when he says... Walk before me and be blameless. And when we don't, he says, you are deserving of punishment. And now the particular kind of punishment, we just dip into answer 11 for a moment, is eternal punishment. And we might say to ourselves, you know, what is so serious about sin? It's not such a big deal. But sin is sin against the infinite majesty, glory, beauty, holiness, awesomeness of God himself. Answer 11 speaks of the fact that his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. 
eternal punishment of body and soul. And again, maybe to help us understand this, I think, boys and girls, you know, if you have a big mouth to your little brother, that's not a good thing. If you have a big mouth to your mom or your dad, that's an even worse thing. If you do some bad things to your little brother is one thing. If you do it to the Prime Minister of Canada or the King of England, that might be another thing altogether. And when we sin in thought, word, and deed against God, then that sin is against his infinite majesty and is deserving of the supreme penalty of eternal punishment of body and soul. That is a reality. Now, if you read the answer 10 in the Catechism, how God cannot deny himself, it says here, you know, will God just let it go? A lot of people think that's what God ought to do. He ought to just let it go. But, but God cannot deny himself. He cannot say one thing and do another. You and I do that all the time, and that's why we maybe don't quite get this. How many times, moms and dads, have you said, if you do that one more time, you're going to go to your room? Okay, two more times. No, maybe three. Okay, okay forget about it. I changed my mind. God cannot deny himself. God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. which also makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? God is terribly angry with the sin we're born with. But we need to think a little bit about why that makes us uncomfortable. When I read the language that God is terribly angry, I might think of times when I, in my foolishness, got terribly angry. And I can acknowledge and confess to you that that time or those times were times where I expressed sinful anger. And it's pretty hard for us not to do that. It's pretty hard for us to appreciate that anger is a good thing in its proper place when it is righteous anger. And God's anger is always a good and right thing. God's anger is never over the top in terms of more than it ought to be. God's anger is never out of control that's not what it means by terribly angry. It means that God is righteously, truthfully, fiercely angry with the reality of sin. He hates it. Because it is completely opposite, antagonistic to who he is. And all of his beauty, glory, majesty, and love. His anger is an expression of his righteous love. We don't get that. James 1, verses 20 and following, they, urge, uh, they were urged, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, because the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But when God is angry, he accomplishes his righteous purposes. And he is rightfully angry. In Romans chapter 1, we are told of the reality of God's anger 
Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And our catechism says God is terribly angry. That's present tense. That's right now. With the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. Sin rightfully deserves God's anger. We need to take that seriously. And we need to listen to what the Catechism is saying when it says here, He is rightfully angry with the sin we are born with, as well as the sins we actually commit, or our actual sins. So there is original sin that we have inherited in Adam, the guilt and corruption in Adam, and there are the actual sins that we just keep on doing. And the Catechism says God is angry with both. I think that's also something for us to pay attention to today, where, where people sometimes justify sentiments of the heart. They almost say, well, this is who I am. This is how I was born. I have these desires. I have these lusts. I have these uh, inclinations. I was born that way. You can't expect me to be any different. and says God is rightfully angry you could say both with the sins we're born with as well as those we actually continue to commit so it just shows us the depth of our need in the Lord Jesus Christ God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity it's been declared at the end of verse 10, uh, sorry, not t- verse, um, question and answer 10. This is a reference to Galatians 3, which is quoting Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. That's, that's devastating if you think about that. Cursed is everyone who does not obey all things written in the book of the law. And therefore, you understand, every one of us is deserving of judgment. We need to face that reality. There's one more angle that is used here. Um, It's in number 11. Isn't God also merciful? There might be a way out, yes. But don't misunderstand. So, God also cannot deny himself... In the promise, he extends to sinners. In the mercy, he has for sinners. That's our third point. The catechism here, it begins with a glorious assertion. God is certainly merciful. And that is wonderful to hear. That is necessary to hear. That we require to hear again and again and again. God delights in mercy. That's what he's like. Ezekiel chapter 18, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes great delight in the salvation of sinners. That's the point. Boys and girls, you know the account of Jesus' parable of the... um, lost son, the prodigal son. 
And, and repeatedly we're told there in the course of Jesus' teaching, there is more joy, Luke 15, verse 7, Luke 15, verse 10, there is more joy in the presence of the angels in heaven over one sinner that repents. And the point is, it's God himself who is delighting, who rejoices over us with loud singing in the blessing of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, our God is merciful. Thanks be to God. He delights in mercy. We need to hear that here. And yet it appears almost as though the catechism almost doesn't want to go there. God is certainly merciful, it says, but he's also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with supreme penalty. Now, don't misunderstand what's going on here. What we're being shown here is that God cannot deny himself. So don't be fluffy or superficial in your appeal to the fact, well, God is merciful. God is merciful. If you don't understand the reality of his judgment, how can he be merciful? You see, we're not actually playing mercy off against judgment. We're saying that God, who cannot deny himself, is altogether righteous all the time and wonderfully gracious in all that he does. We've sung from Psalm 145 at verse 17, God is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. Now we need to appreciate the seriousness of God's continued commitment to perfect justice. Thanks be to God, actually, if you think about it. Every single sin in this world will be punished. God doesn't turn a blind eye to any sin that's ever been committed. But they're punished in his beloved Son for those of us who, by God's grace, have put our trust in him. You see, when we were given the language of Deuteronomy 27, quoted from Galatians 3, bottom of question 10, answer 10. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all things written in the book of the law. The same context says in Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Galatians 3 fleshes that out. Jesus was made to be the curse for us that we might know the blessing God. Thanks be to God. Yes, our God is merciful. Let me just read uh, the way God came to Moses in Exodus 34 to put um, flesh on that. In Exodus 34, when God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, we read in 34, verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, 
heaping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yes, our God is merciful, we say with the catechism. But, as God goes on himself to Moses, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You understand that God's ultimate commitment to absolutely perfect justice, to be committed to himself and who he is, that he cannot deny himself, means that God has visited the iniquity of our sins upon his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who became a curse for us. Understand, we have been redeemed with justice. You understand the language of Romans 3, 25, 26, and 27. God delivered his son up to the cross to be the atoning sacrifice, propitiation, to take the wrath of God on his shoulders so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, our God is merciful, and we taste of the mercy of God because Jesus has endured in our place the righteous wrath of God. Jesus Christ has worked his way through the just judgment of God. And God cannot deny himself. And now God will not deny himself. In terms of everything that has been promised us, we've heard it in the call to worship this evening. They were to seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. For God will have mercy on him. And God will abundantly pardon. God cannot deny himself. The Lord Jesus Christ has said, All who come to me I will in no wise cast out. He cannot deny himself. Thanks be to God. But the way we enjoy the blessing of his mercy is through what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our place in enduring God's justice. So it's not as though we're looking for an easy way out. It's as though we come to the realization of just what Jesus Christ has done for us and just who Jesus is for us. So by God's grace, we put our trust in this faithful saying. 2 Timothy 2 verse 11. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. It's sure. God cannot deny himself. By the grace of God, we have died to ourselves. Right? Colossians 3 puts it this way. You died. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. God cannot deny himself. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And God will see to it by his grace to you in Jesus Christ that you persevere in the faith. He will not let you go. You will reign with him forever. He cannot deny himself.
Now, if we deny him, he will also deny us. He will not allow us to remain in that way. The likes of a, a Peter denied him, and we do it in stupid ways ourselves. But Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned, restore the brethren. Jesus would not allow Peter to remain in that condition of denying Jesus. Rather, we're enabled to confess Jesus, and he confesses us before his Father in heaven. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That means you must remain faithful in his judgment. But if we acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our faithlessness, acknowledge our unfaithfulness before him, he remains faithful to forgive us our sins. Remember that language? That's familiar language, right? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Verse 9 particularly. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cannot deny himself. And there's our confidence. Our confidence is found in God. And Paul is saying to Timothy, keep reminding them of these things. Paul is saying to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Always point them to Jesus Christ. He's the one we need. And it's for a deep appreciation of the fact that we need him. That we need to acknowledge, yes, we are unable. But we are responsible. Yes, God is just to punish sin. Yes, God is merciful. But he's merciful in the way that he has poured out the wrath that I deserve on Jesus in my place. Thanks be to God, he cannot deny himself. Amen.